I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Holly Shelton, who's the CEO and co-founder of Move With. Holly, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Carl. You know, I like to start off with two things. First, I want to just point our listeners to your website, movewith.com. The other thing I like to start with is just have us give you, give us your elevator pitch, which I bet you've done a few times before. (laughs) Just a few times. Give Um, us the elevator pitch. Yeah. So um, Move With helps fitness instructors build personal brands and thriving careers both in the studio and beyond. And so when you look at a fitness instructor, typically they pull together a somewhat meager living teaching at three plus studios um, and, uh, you know, have very little control over what they teach, when they teach and the, the relationship and ownership of that relationship with their students. And so what Move With does is give them the tools um, to both grow and rally their communities every single time they teach and to create their own fitness offerings Um in, in the studio and beyond the studio. Yeah. Uh, um, and then when when you think about it on the mover side, what this is is a network for, we call them movers. Uh, Those are the end user. The, the end user, fitness goers. Fitness goers. People who yeah. like to be active and healthy. Um, and so this is a network for you to find and connect with the best instructors in your city. Um, and so our iOS app and, and website make it really easy for you to find classes with instructors that you like. Uh, we have the ability for you to check in to any class that you take, whether you booked it on Move With or elsewhere. And in doing so, you actually connect directly to the instructor and to other classmates that were in your class. And so we think about Move With really as a relationship uh, rather than a transaction. Um, and, and that's because we really believe that instructors and the community that surrounds them are a huge motivating factor when it comes to leading active lives um, that actually are sustainable and last. And so our mission is um, to connect you to those instructors and to the communities around them um, so that you're motivated to to stick with it yeah well this is what i suppose we in business school land would call a two-sided market right which is you're connecting a provider and a consumer Mm -hmm. uh, through a platform Uh, let's let's just start with the mover as you say it so the person (laughs) using uh, the the person desiring to become more fit or to get some exercise what's their use use user experience tell me how i use the app yeah Yeah. so you pull up the app um there's a a tab with a bunch of classes Mm -hmm. um all kind of organized by teacher and so um it makes it really easy for you to find a class with the information about the instructor so we're all about helping you find the class that you're actually going to get the most out of and really enjoy um and then when you've booked a class, uh, you can easily check into that class. We call checking and showing up. And this is actually a new feature that we just built. Um, and you don't have to have booked the class actually on Move With um, to check into a class. You just show up, you check in, um, the teacher knows you're there, and every classmate with you checks into the class. And then you, you can have a conversation with your classmates. We track every class you take. And so it's really that relational um, aspect of fitness that we're doubling down on there. Mm. All right. So I, so far, we're we're a few minutes into this conversation, and no one has mentioned Health Club, or and and because I'm immediately thinking, okay, where am I going to have this class exactly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the classes are actually in person. Yeah. Um, so the classes happen. We have two types of classes on yeah. our platform. Um, those that teachers have created on their own, mm-hmm. um, and th- those are called original classes on our platforms. So if you go to our app, they'll have a little tag called original. Um, and all that means is it's teacher-created and owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so teachers host them in all sorts of places, um, from Baker Beach um, in San Francisco with views of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, to the Charles River where they do running classes, to churches and art galleries. Um, so teachers are very creative uh, with where they host classes that they're offering on their own. Um, and we also have, um, we really capture a teacher's full teaching life. Um, so we also have their entire uh, schedule in the studio. Mm. Um, so, But it's all group fitness and all classes that you and, take. And all public spaces or, or spaces that this instructor controls. Is that, or, or was there a second category? So there's studio classes okay. um, that that te- teachers typically teach in three or more studios. Um, and so we, we have relationships with studios and those classes are available on our product. Um, but what teachers are really excited about in the product is creating their own offerings yeah. and really innovating there. Okay, I gotta ask, what is a class in a church uh, involve? 
<laughs> so actually we have a couple of them, but there's one in Boston. Um, it's called Run Yoga. And this is actually a really cool class. It's, it's a series. It's eight weeks um, taught by an instructor whose name is Kara Gilman. And they, they go for like a four or five mile run on the Charles River. And then they come back to this beautiful Boston church uh, as the light's coming down. And Kara, Kara teaches about an hour yoga class uh, with candles lit. Um, specific to runners. Um, she's been doing this. Actually, she was our first teacher on the platform, um, and it's really cool. She sells out the, the series every single time, and it's just a very um, accessible way. Her mission yeah. is to make running and yoga accessible to anyone. Yeah. You know, I just as an aside, I, I churches are underutilized resources today. I, I lived in a church uh, <laughs> really? I, yeah, for 17 years, and my father, who's a religious man, when asked about his son's religious practice, would say, church he practically lives in the church so, <laughs> so uh i'm sure your users have a religious experience so that's that's good yeah, yeah. uh all right so that's the user side which is really interesting uh what what's the experience like on the provider side so, and, yeah, what, so and what do you start what do you call them we call them teachers, teachers okay. <laughs> um teachers or instructors but we use the word teachers um for teachers um this is really the place to build their brand first and foremost so it it creates a personal web page for them that has their full teaching schedule. And then it gives them the tools mm -hmm. uh, to grow their, we call it their tribe, their, their audience, um, and to create new offerings. So it has all the scheduling tools that you would need, the payment tools that you would need uh, that your typical marketplace would have for, for the supply side that's creating um, their own sort of offering. And do you do any kind of vetting or do you let the market essentially determine who who wins and loses on your platform? Yeah, so we're actually in a transition there. So we started out where the company is um, a little over a year old from from being first into market. And um, initially we started out highly curated um, with all instructors that we had personally vetted. Um, but we've been collecting mm -hmm. reviews and letting the community tell us um, who's good for quite some time. And so um, long term, the, the community will tell tell us who, yeah. who's the great instructors. You know, just to follow up on that question, I, you know, I teach entrepreneurship. I see a lot of two-sided market kinds of businesses. And one of the critical questions when you get started is how do you, how do you kickstart this thing? How do you get it started? And what advice would you give to somebody starting a two-sided market in terms of how to get it going? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we started on the supply side. Um, for us, we started, I actually started the company with five instructors mm -hmm. in Boston. I hacked together my own webpage. Um, but, you know, I, th I think for us in the beginning, we we felt like there wasn't going to be enough community to really tell us quality yet, and there wasn't enough supply yet. So we, we really focused on getting the right supply there in the beginning um, and getting to a, a certain density um, before we started to open it up from there, yeah. um, which for us worked really well. Yeah. So I, I, just to generalize a little bit, so you sort of have to brute force the supply a little bit. To, yeah, to, it's to, a lot to of hand holding. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's just, it's it's a lot of unscalable stuff actually yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. But then how many instructors do you have now? Um, we roughly, we d yeah. roughly we're, we have like, thousands of, oh, of instructors wow. at this point okay. um, that were we have really healthy penetration um in both boston we're only in boston san francisco mm -hmm. um and so um we have a really good supply of of both teachers um and movers on the platform now all right well i'm i'm curious the one of the things that struck me when i looked at the website and and your bio and so forth was how you put the teacher at the center and I wondered if that had been the original vision or whether that's an evolution. Maybe take us back to the origin story and, uh, and how that vision has evolved. Yeah. So I think the seed for it was um, probably started at, when I was young as an athlete. I grew mm. up as a ski racer. So my entire life I've had amazing coaches. Um, and um, fast forward many years, I was an EIR in Boston. I had just left Apple. And um, I knew I wanted to do something in fitness and wellness. I wanted to do something that affected people's active lives. Um, and in the beginning, I actually thought I wanted to do a wearable device. So I'm a mechanical engineer and was really fascinated with what was happening in wearables. Um, but the more I dug there, the, the devices ended up in closets and I started feeling like it was actually the people that were the motivating factors um, when it came to fitness and healthy living. And um, when you look at the people in fitness, like the, the instructor is really the micro-influencer of their tribes, um, and they're the rallier of these communities around them. Um, and for me personally, they had always been the, the, that force that just got me there 
time and made me want to show up. And so it was actually from the, from the beginning, it started with my own problem. Mm -hmm. And then I started meeting instructors and I started realizing how difficult it is for them to actually have a thriving career. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I listened to all of their pain points and how hungry they were to actually innovate and to really, um, have a, a greater impact than they felt like they were having. And I started to get angry at, at how yeah. difficult it was. Um, so it kind of started as my own problem and then evolved into, into really wanting to solve a problem for, for a group of people who had had such a strong impact on my life, um, f from, you know, age five till today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. So I get the, you know, scratch your own itch part of it, but there's another, there's another maybe less obvious lesson here, which is sometimes there's a technological opportunity to just dramatically redistribute the value, right? Mm -hmm. And so the loser in this proposition was the gatekeeper, which was you know, back to health clubs, right? They were, they were mm -hmm. controlling the market. What, how different is the life of, of a successful instructor on Move With compared to their previous, their previous yeah. So, I mean, we find that instructors who are really successful with their own original classes are making a lot more money. Mm -hmm. um, they have more control over when they teach. Um, and potentially, most importantly to them, to this group of people, is the what they teach. Yeah. Um, and so they're not teaching to a formula. They're teaching something that they're really passionate about. Um, maybe... Yeah, just one, of the, one other thing about the solution that you could t talk a little bit about. I noticed that... Uh, one of the Strava co-founders is on your advisory board, and you know I'm a I'm a Strava user, and and one of the things that's interesting is the social aspect, mm -hmm. and maybe you could talk a little bit about how important social is, and what you've done to, I don't know, gamify or make social the experience. Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually working on on social right now in our product, um, but. Uh, we that's it was kind of the the beginnings of the company was about that relational aspect that started with a teacher but definitely doesn't end with a teacher it includes everyone else that right. you're you're taking classes or moving with um so um so for us we've built we actually decided we don't care where you booked the class we more care that you hold yourself accountable and move with and that the, you're having the relationship with the instructors um and your fellow fellow classmates on move with uh, and so we're building the tools that make it really easy for people to share their group fitness experiences on move with and to track all of those in a similar way that you do your run or your ride on strava yeah, yeah and i also wondered it's it the social is is, is pretty compelling i was with a friend who's uh, recently back in the dating market, and he was saying, you know, marathons are actually pretty good places to meet yeah. <laughs> to meet women because we share a lot, and uh, and and so I, you know, you could imagine some adjacencies, right? In, uh, in, uh, yeah, that's people have joked uh, on our product team a fair bit. About, yeah, exactly. Are people are people going to start dating out of this? Actually, there's a book that came out in April called Sweat Equity that talks a lot about how. Um, the younger generations um, are really using fitness um, as as their actually a bit of their religion yeah. um, and their social outlet. It's it's replaced a lot of what the institution used to be for right. for many people. Right. Yeah. The the church is now the place we uh, exercise. Right? Is now, yeah. is now exactly, <laughs> exactly quite literally. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> it, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel One Eleven. I'm speaking now with Holly Shelton, who's the CEO and co-founder of Move With. Holly, take us back. So you have, we're going to get in a little later to your very impressive career. But if we go back to the beginning, you you were thinking about starting starting something. You weren't quite sure what to do. You had this germ of an idea, which was about two years ago. Is that right? Yeah, about two years ago. Yeah. So what? Get walk us through the milestones. What did you do? Because it, it, I looked at the financing, which is fairly recent, right? So you must have moved it along on your own for a while. So maybe talk us through what you yeah. thought you had to prove and, and how you validated the concept, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah so I, I started with the idea that kind of crystallized one night and I, I, sp I stayed up all night and created a set of wireframes to demonstrate what I wanted to build. Yeah. Um, and then just started talking to people about it. Um, I was looking for, for people that wanted to work on the idea with me. Um, but I started talking to customers immediately. Um, and, and in my case, that was teachers. Um, and so I started really understanding what the pain points, um, were for teachers. Um, and then literally just went out and started, I wanted to understand if I gave teachers a platform to create their own offerings, 
um, how excited were they to do that? And if they did do that, would people follow them? Because my hypothesis was that the relationship with the teacher was strong enough that people would follow them. Um, and so I hacked together a web page on my own, um, and we just started building. We just started mm-hmm. offering classes with teachers in Boston. Um, and this was probably in the September time frame, yeah. um, uh, uh, two years ago. Yeah. And then um, actually I, I reached out to Michael Horvath, who's the founder yeah. of Strava, and um, we started brainstorming and having coffee. And he was actually the first person who, before I really had any product or, or any real traction, um, wanted to invest. So mm. and I actually wasn't asking for money. Um, it just kind of came organically. And that was the beginning of a fundraise cycle. Um, and uh, a month or so later, I went out and pitched some early stage seed investors. Uh, and uh, a few weeks later, we had our first million dollar round together. You know, I want to go back. There's a whole bunch of stuff there that's really interesting. But the first is your ability to really pilot this concept at a very limited scale. And so I can easily understand how you could get a few a few uh, uh, trained teachers on, on the platform. How did you get the first cohort of movers? Uh, yeah. Were they friends and family, sort of that kind of thing? Or, no, they yeah. weren't. Um, we just leveraged – well, I leveraged the teacher a lot. So mm. I, I was very strategic in going out to teachers who already had a strong following. Um, and I was very active on social media. Um, we started early with some partnerships in Boston, Sweet Green. We did a, an event with Sweet Green, mm. and we, we used every resource that we could to get the word out. Um, but the teacher was actually a huge catalyst for us very early. Um, and then people started realizing they could do things on Move With and started yeah. moving with other teachers, and it just kind of started happening. You know, that leads me to another question I should have asked earlier, which is about the business model. Because for to get the teacher to be your advocate, it has to make good business sense for them. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the revenue model and how the sharing works. Yeah, yeah. so um, so I'll, I'll first talk about what t- teachers typically make in, in a mm-hmm. studio, which um, depends on the studio, but typically they make three maybe $4 per student, or they make a flat rate of somewhere between 45 and $70. Um, so they're making, you know, 20 to 30% of the full ticket price. Um, and on move with, um, they make, we, we take 5% plus a dollar per, per transaction. So they're making the vast majority of, of every single ticket they sell on move with. And they set their own price. They set their own price. Yeah. Yes. And what, what is a typical class? What does it cost? Um, our average is about 18, $18 yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. So if I just do the math on that, so let's call it 20 to make it easier. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this customer pays 20 and you get one. You get $1. So, you know, you have to you have to be doing a lot of volume. Yeah, uh, we need to do a lot of volume. Yeah. yeah. Um and and right now an original an original class as we call it is um is really just a, a local class, but when you look at what teachers are actually innovating and creating on um, it extends to workshops, um, retreats, oh, teacher trainings. And yeah. so if you look at the evolution of a teacher, she often ta- starts off teaching um, your regular classes that you go to every week. Um, and at some point, they start branching out to offer what we call deep dives. Um, and that, that scales from a workshop all the way up to a teacher training. Yeah. So, um, I, w- so uh, I want to circle back to something you said. You went to Michael Horvath, who was the f- co-founder of, of Strava, and there's a saying that in Silicon Valley, but also more broadly that I'll share with our listeners, which is if you want money, ask for advice. If you mm. want advice, ask for money. So, <laughs> so you, you did exactly the right thing. You asked for advice, and, and you had a, a, the prospect of money. But help me with the timeline a little bit. So you had had you had any transactions before you raised that million dollars or? Yes, um, but a very small amount of transactions. So it was really a pilot that we had run and we used that pilot to prove the thesis. Yeah. Um, And then we raised money so that we could actually build a product that wasn't hacked by me, who is not an engineer and should not be building. Well, you are an engineer, just not that kind. Just not that kind, the wrong kind of engineer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then that million dollars took you to I, I I don't know if I can trust what's on uh, Crunchbase but it said you raised in January yeah. again from by the way uh, uh, forerunner which is an awesome VC f- uh, fund one of the partners is my former student Yuri Kim so I she's I, fantastic yeah, we she love is her. terrific yeah <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about what you had to show between the the million and mm-hmm. building that first product and when you were able to get a VC to, to give you a couple more, three million more, something like that. Yeah, yeah. so we raised yeah. another three million about yeah. twelve months later. Yeah. Um 
So we we had scaled the product into Boston or from Boston to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd launched in so we raised money our first round in January. We launched the first product in April, um, and then we came to San Francisco in September. Um, and so we had about three months of data in San Francisco, um, and basically we had figured out how to acquire teachers fairly quickly, mm-hmm. um, and we had the, f- the product that they could used to create when we started move with it was literally like teachers would tell us what they wanted to teach and then in the back end we would add all of those classes ourselves but they were not Mm self-sufficient so we had built it was really building the product so teachers could be self-sufficient and proving um product market fit that the teachers would do this on their own and that we were able to repeat it and do it faster Uh, so Talk a little bit about, you refer to this move a couple times. We're seeing in San Francisco, you started in Boston. What what explained the, <laughs> the, the migration? Yeah, um, so my co-founder, who I had met from the very beginning, um, was always in San Francisco. Um, and my, my career previously had been in San Francisco. I was in Boston, actually, for two years because my, bo- my husband was getting a, a PhD in ah. He um, did in two years. That's miraculous. No, he just finished his coursework in two years. He's he's still yeah, getting ABD. his PhD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so yeah. I mean, it was it was partly personal, um, and and the fact that the co-founder and my co-founder and my early set of engineers was here, um, but also just I'd I'd spent time in both cities, and I just knew the energy and the talent that was in mm. San Francisco, um, and felt like this was where I really wanted to build the company. Okay. All right, and then I want to circle back on on something you said about customers, and I'm going to ask you a really hard question, but it's one I've wanted to ask somebody who worked at Apple forever, <laughs> so this is my chance. You spent five years at Apple in mm-hmm. product management, product marketing, MacBook, MacBook Pro, um, and I'm you know, I, I teach that we should talk to customers, but everyone says, no, Apple doesn't talk to customers, so Tell me if that's true, and <laughs> and and if if you learned bad habits at Apple, or or is Apple lying to us that they don't talk to customers? <laughs> and and I don't know whether you're still under NDA, but just you know, give us the I story. I think I'm under NDA for life. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Apple does not do focus groups. Um, but Apple is very close to their customer. I but would say. And so, but say yeah. So what? Say more. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so first of all, it's vertically integrated. So you have the retail store. You have a lot of data coming out of yeah. the retail store. You understand exactly how people are using the products, where their pain points are, what they're struggling with. Um, we did a lot of um, just visits with videographers, photographers. Like, we, we definitely talk to customers all the all Yeah, we the call time. that market research, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so there there definitely was not a lack of understanding of the customer. Okay. And, and actually, something I did learn at Apple was um, not to ask people what they wanted. Mm. Apple was very clear about you, you don't ask what people want, um, but you look for Band-Aids. Mm. Um, and so I was trained to figure out what are the solutions that people are cobbling together that a product should be solving um, rather than asking them, what do you want? I love that. I have you on record. I'm going to like t- take this video clip and put it in my class. So they know they, you actually do do market research at Apple. It's just not survey research. It's or not survey research. research. It's not yeah. your traditional yeah. research. Yeah. I also love this idea of looking for band-aids. Were there band-aids in this space that you saw? Were people patching things, solutions together? Yeah, yeah. that was what I really quickly... Well, on both sides, really, but yeah. especially on the teacher side. Um, so teachers, it's not that teachers weren't creating their own stuff before and they weren't growing their careers before, but they were hacking it. They were using, they had an email list at the back of the classroom mm. where they were growing their distribution. Um, they were using PayPal or um, check to collect money. Um, they, ha- they had hacked together personal web pages um, that, that largely lived on an island. And then they've become social media experts. So they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook. And so they've, they're using a collection of tools um, that's not a full solution, um, but to, to solve their problem, which is how do I make money and how do I put a new offering into people's hands? Um, I, I wonder if you can take us back to the 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 transition from you doing this on your own you're excited you're building a wireframe staying up all night to now you have a, a a fleshed out team so talk a little bit about developing this team yeah so i started out looking for a co-founder i knew i didn't want to be a sole founder um and so i was looking for someone that had complementary skill sets um either someone very technical engineer um, or designer. Um, mm-hmm. And I ended up finding 
my co-founder who's a who's our chief design officer um and uh i found her through a friend mm -hmm. a mutual friend she'd worked uh, underneath one of my very good friends before and she was a yoga instructor she's a, a professional dancer and so she was really immersed in the space she'd spent five years at eventbrite mm -hmm. um, she understood marketplaces um, and was just a phenomenal designer and it started out as one coffee turned into four coffees mm -hmm. turned into her calling me and saying she'd left her job and wanted to do this full time so the two of us started the company together um, and then we hired um, we actually started out with just a couple of contractor engineers before we'd really raised enough money um, and then started growing the engineering team from there we started off with engineering team um, just a couple of engineers ios um, and a back-end engineer um, and then because of the nature of our our company we needed uh, people in market so we hired um, a general manager for boston and did the same thing when we came to san francisco um, and now let's see, a year and a half later, um, we hired our first VP of engineering in April, so very recently, and actually doubled our technical team um, in that time frame. So now we have uh, six engineers in total. Um, our team is still relatively small. We're, we're 12 people total. Um, but we have enough people that we're, work, we're building product at 4x the speed than we were when we started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe uh, it's in, it's interesting to me that you chose design, and by that I think we mean experience graphic web design as as the as the co-founder. Um, so I suppose you have some choices, right? You you have your own skills, then you have to decide how what the complementary skill set is. The alternative, I suppose, would have been tech. Yeah, right? Somebody, so a CTO. Yeah. yeah, and and was it opportunistic? Did you, and I'm remembering your name, is it Trisha? Trisha, yeah, yeah. Trisha Troy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it was that I met Trisha first. Yeah. And, and she was very excited. And the two of us, with her design and my product skills, were able to, to pull together what we wanted to build very mm -hmm. effectively. Um, I think we would have been open had we found the right CTO at, at that time yeah. um, to having three co-founders. But, um, but it just turned out it was the two of us, and we were able to find engineers that could execute on building. In the beginning, our product was pretty simple. Yeah. Um, but is, do you think that's, that's the nature of the product you were building, that it, that it was more important that you figure out the user experience than that you figure out how the database worked? Or was it just that you needed somebody to kick things around with, and it could have been any thoughtful I think it was maybe partly the nature of yeah. the product. Um, we we were both very product centric people, um, but you know, I think I think if I were to start a company today, I would definitely also be looking uh, to add a CTO to the company really early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Holly, we'll come back and and pick that thread up because it sounds like there's more to that story. But I but we need to take a commercial break. So stay with us as we continue our conversation with the CEO and co-founder of Move with Holly Shelton. Holly, just before the break, we were talking about forming the team, and you had made this decision to go with your partner, Trisha Choi, who is the designer, and not with the CTO, and that sounded partly opportunistic. And then there was just a little tone of your voice that suggested <laughs> that, that getting the technical resources may have been present some challenges. Talk a little bit about, you had a vision for what the product should be, uh, how do you first of all, how do you go about building the product and and what'd you learn along the ways? Yeah, um, so yeah, I think um, we definitely had a clear vision of what we wanted to build and maybe underestimated what needs to go into mm. the architecture of building even something that seems simple. Um, and so in terms of how we built it, we started off um, building a web-only product. Um, we decided not to, to start on iOS um, because we wanted it to be something that was accessible to teachers of Android and iOS. Um, it was also much faster to get to market with. Yeah. Um, and we had a small team, so we wanted to focus on only one platform at the time. And the idea was, I, I'm not, this is not my deep, narrow t expertise, but you, it would be mobile-friendly web yeah so uh, it was so responsive web, responsive web um, so right, you could yeah. use it on your iphone or android yeah. um, and also on your desktop right um and so that was the fastest way for us to get to market and the the first product was really simple it was just um a listing of classes that you could purchase mm -hmm. um and a, a, a teacher profile page attached to every class that gave you information about the teacher um and it had no tools yet for the teacher to create um but i think basically what happened for us is we started then suddenly we had 25 and then 50 and then 100 teachers and we just started growing quickly um and we didn't go back and properly architect the system for scale mm. um and so I, I think you hear this from a lot of startups but um 
but that's why I say um, if to start over, I, I would have optimally had um, the talent that we have in-house in right now um, from the very beginning that would have laid a foundation that we could that we could build on as we started really growing quickly. Yeah, but but isn't there a tension there? I mean, there's the, the conventional wisdom today is the so-called MVP or minimum viable product says, hey, just get this thing out there. You fix it later. Yeah. And what do they call it? Technical debt. You know, yeah. technical debt when you when you do that. But the the what you the risk you're mitigating is that you spend all this money building this 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 cathedral which is inappropriate yeah right? so how uh, yeah you, it's true you, I yeah. mean we were able to get to market really quickly yeah. quickly we we're able to learn really quickly we now know exactly what we're building moving forward mm -hmm. and we're we're building it with a really great team mm -hmm. um, so there are always trade offs there it's um, anytime you have to slow down to to build things the right way it's going to be frustrating. Um, you know, and, and it was interesting for me coming from Apple because I'm used to putting out like perfect product or as, right. as close to perfect as you get. But with like a thousand engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I had to get very comfortable with putting yeah. product out that um, that I wasn't comfortable with. That was like way too early to be putting in anyone's hands. Mm -hmm. But um, but I knew I had to to learn quickly. That that first product, did you build it with with in-house uh, engineers or had you contracted with someone? Um, we built it with in-house contractors okay. that were working full time, but, um, had come from a contracting yeah. background. And then, but the, the team you have now, tell me how you, how you would advise us to set up the tech team for a company that's not, I mean, it's not fundamentally about the technology, but it's enabled by the technology. It's enabled by the technology. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, if I were starting from scratch, yeah. I would start out um, with a CTO um, that could look at a lot of different ways, mm -hmm. but hopefully someone that has that understands the full stack, um, so can understand the back-end architecture pieces as well as um, iOS and, and any sort of front-end web stuff um, that is optimally excited about your idea and passionate um, and knows how to grow a team. Mm. Um, but in the early days, the team's going to be small. So it's probably someone that doesn't need to grow a huge team yet, but really needs to know, get excited about early yeah. product and iterating quickly. Yeah, but then you also face that the challenge of, do you hire for, this is the Ben Horowitz story, do you hire for the job you have now or the job you think it will be right. in, in, the, in the future? Um, so maybe you could talk a bit more about recruiting because that is probably emerging as one of your critical <laughs> challenges. Uh, how, how have you gone about it and, and what, it, what have been the challenges? Yeah, um, I've re leaned very heavily on my network from a recruiting perspective. Um, between my co-founder and I and each person we bring into the company, we're, we're all fairly networked. And um, so it's all about getting out and into the into my network and ask mm -hmm. telling them what we're looking for um and talking to as many people as possible um i've found recruiters and um e hired and in, in places like that to be less effective personally mm -hmm. for us even angelist um although we did find a ux designer off of angelist mm -hmm. um but but for our critical hires it's almost always come from my my personal network or my co-founder's personal network, um, or potentially an investor's network. Um, and, and just finding people that, that really resonate with the idea and yeah. culture. Now has, uh, I, I'm thinking about what it takes to persuade someone to, to get on, <laughs> to get on this boat with you. Yeah. Uh, say a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even for me, like, so early on, uh, my co-founder and I both decided to take no salary in mm -hmm. the beginning until um, we had enough capital into the company. And the early people we brought on were making a fraction of what they were making yeah. elsewhere. Um, and so it was really about getting people who were really hungry to, mm -hmm. first of all, to build something from the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I, I've not for one second wanted to do anything different because it's just so gratifying when you're when you're co-creating and you're building something from the beginning, but you have to find people that are more motivated by mm. that and a potential outcome later yeah. than they are by immediate cash. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I, one of the things I tell budding entrepreneurs at, at Wharton is that one of the things they should practice at while they're in school is persuasion, which yeah. is 
I have to somehow convince these people that I'm not crazy (laughs) (laughs) and that what we're going to do is so awesome Mm -hmm. that they should, they want, they just have to be along for the ride. Yeah. And so for me, that really started with a mission first company um, and getting people really passionate about the why behind what we were doing and the potential of what this could become. Um, And, but yeah, persuasion is really important. It's important for building the team and it's important for fundraising. I suspect. Well, we're we're going to get into your background a little bit, but it's you know it's a it's a very credible team and and so forth. Um, the, the another question that comes to mind for me is honestly this this is not a new idea. This is not. I mean, it's it's great, but it but it's it it's not you know it's not SpaceX, right? It's not like it, it yeah. it's a two sided markets are everywhere. Yeah. And it's just yeah, you're applying a two sided market to a problem that has had friction and, and inefficiency. What what differentiates winners and losers when the idea itself is is really not that extraordinary? Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. This isn't. It's not even a MacBook Pro, right? The, the yeah, technology right. that yeah. goes into this. Um, not even a MacBook you know, Pro. I, I, I like yeah. to, as a product person, I like to think we're always innovating. But yeah. but there's always like scales of, yeah, yeah, of yeah. that. Um, and the innovation really is in, in the execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and the execution isn't just in the product. It's on how quickly you get penetration in the market, um, and uh, on both sides of the market and get to liquidity. Um, so. Um, I think from a competition perspective, um, everyone's, everyone approaches the problem slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Some people are very focused on the studio and in mm-hmm. different aspects of fitness. And when you look at fitness, it's actually an enormous industry. Um, so, but speed, it's all for us. It's about a combination of speed and experience, mm-hmm. um, and making sure that we're always on the edge of speed while delivering the best experience we can possibly deliver. But you know, it, it it's also, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how difficult raising institutional capital was because if you look at it, I guess I would say if I were an institutional investor, I wouldn't really question whether the market opportunity was there. Mm-hmm. The only question I'd really ask is, can this team execute it better than, than someone else? Um, first of all, is that true? And then how hard was it to make the case? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, is it true from the execution perspective? Yeah. yeah I think, I think it's all about the execution. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, I was having come out of Apple. I was probably preconditioned to this, but I was like, didn't want to tell people the idea because you think it's like, oh, someone else is going to do that. But I'm, I mean, <laughs> really, like you said, twenty other people, people have probably exactly. already done it. Yeah. So it's like it's really just about doing it and yeah. getting out and doing it as quickly as possible, and and making sure that what you're doing is the right product and it's in the right order. Um, so, and in terms of raising capital, uh, yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> raising capital is. Um, it's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of conversations about finding a partner who believes that your crazy idea is that it's going to, you're actually going to be able to execute right. and turn it into something in, incredibly valuable. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, you know, and, and it's, it's about proving that this is a huge idea mm. when you're looking at the venture mm. venture market. How, when you say it's hard, I, I, I don't know, everything looks kind of effortless to me from this, from this perspective, but, but how hard was it? to raise the capital? Um, I, I mean, I'll, I've done so many hard things. So like it, it's, a, it, uh, it was as hard as other things I've done in my life, but in a different way, it's just yeah. a different level of intensity yeah. and it's, um, but give me a sense. I, I want to calibrate our listeners. How many introductions to investors? Yeah. How many pitch decks do you send out? How many meetings do you have to do to get $3 million in venture capital? For us, we probably had um, 15 to 20 meetings, I would mm-hmm. say, in total. Um, and we were kind of, uh, we'd, we were still really early from a traction perspective right. and a revenue pr- perspective. And so uh, we weren't at a place where we we're raising a really large Series A yet. Um, but we had enough traction that we wanted to raise a pretty sizable round. Um, and so it was about finding the right fit with the, the type mm-hmm. of fund, too, um, that, that was looking for something that had enough traction but was still early. Yeah. And and just to follow up on that, I don't know whether you call a, a $3 million round a Series A or not. These days you don't, right? It's, you... Yeah. It's, technically, it's our second round. You could call that an A. Uh, we called it a seed. But, we call um... it a seed. It's, so, it's also laughable now that $3 <laughs> yeah. million is your seed round. But, <laughs> but uh, what do you think you have to – what has to be proven 
uh, for the next for the next round. Yeah. yeah so we're really uh, focused right now on proving that we can quickly grow teachers mm. and that this is um, a tool that teachers really rely on. Um, and we're focused on getting to density on the teacher side, uh, which we've we've already learned is what gets you to the critical mass on the demand side. Um, and so it's it's really about proving the teacher need and and starting to scale into new markets and prove that we have something repeatable. Mm-hmm. But I suppose then a, a, a question is, do you have to I mean, you know, the, the joke is, you know, San Francisco is not really a represent a representative of anything. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird. And so it's 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 useful. I suppose you have Boston. But maybe help us think through how you manage the trade off between getting density in one location versus scaling. Yeah, it's it's a really hard question. Um, So what we've been figuring out is at what density do we start to see a market turn? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're focused on getting to that number as quickly as possible. And and based on our first two markets, we think we understand that. And Mm -hmm. so now we'll go. What does it mean to when you say a market turn? Um, That we so when we got to a particular density, starting with Boston um, on the supply side, uh, we started seeing the number of new movers coming to the platform mm. increase dramatically every month. Um, the number of times they're, that they're moving each month increasing dramatically mm-hmm. and the retention mm-hmm. um, increasing dramatically. And so um, it becomes a destination for the demand side as much as it is for the supply yeah. side. What you know, One of the most famous uh, crashes in recent history was, was Homejoy, which, mm-hmm. uh, which scaled geographically before it had its unit economics nailed down. Uh, how important are the are, is are the unit economics and the business model in a particular geography before you before you expand geographically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really important. I think yeah. it's really important to prove that. I mean, we have our unit economics from on a per transaction basis, but how expensive is it to to get to to a density in a neighborhood mm-hmm. and in a city? Um, and how quickly can you do that? So we've been very focused on making sure that not only we have the right product, but we have um, the right playbook for uh, for growing within a market before we start really stepping on the gas. All right, now I'm going to tease you a little bit. Um, you were <laughs> you were as if I haven't been already, but but you've been at at you were at Apple in product marketing, uh, and you named your company Be Gritzy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got to say that again. B. Gritzy was the name of the the company. So what were you thinking? (laughs) Yeah. um, And and, uh, just tell us a little bit about naming and branding. Yeah. So so I came up with the name Gritzy actually that night that I stayed up all night. Um, (laughs) And it, it came out of. I love the word grit. Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, my move every all, our entire team has a move with word, and mine is a move with grit. Ah. Um, so I, wa- I wanted to create something that had that sentiment in it. Right. And uh, gritsy came up quickly. Of course, gritsy.com wasn't available, so we so got you made it begritsy.com. Uh, interestingly, the Boston market actually really. Uh, liked that name and and some people were upset when we changed the name to move with but um but we, <laughs> I knew from minute one that we were going to have a naming exploration beyond mm-hmm. that um and and we I'm trying to remember when we changed to move with it was probably a couple of months later mm-hmm. uh, that we renamed the company move with and and but I, I don't know the advice I normally give entrepreneurs is it's really annoying to have to change it later. It is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it was more annoying than I anticipated yeah. 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 Um, because every piece of paperwork you have to change. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I would uh, spend the time up front <laughs> if you know that it's not the name you're going to stick with. Yeah. Now you had, you have two dictionary words here. They're, they're not typically used together. Were you, did you have to buy it, or did, or were you able? Was it just available? Move no, forward. we actually did buy it. Okay. Um, I uh, I negotiated with the owner of MoveWith dot com, mm-hmm. and we actually we were able to get it for I think fourteen hundred dollars. Oh, nice! Which yeah. was yeah. Uh, very affordable yeah. relative to a, a, a number of names Move. we were looking at. Dot com, for instance, <laughs> exactly. <which laughs> be fourteen million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I I like it, and I want to ask about you. You do have this very nice. Uh, template on your website, which is you you identify your team as move with X, right? Where X is some attribute, you're move with grit, which is awesome. It, were you thinking about adjacent markets when you named this, uh, and ha- and how and how broad do you think you can go with this brand? Yeah, we wanted we definitely wanted a brand that could scale into adjacent markets. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we wanted something that knowing that we were creating a marketplace where teachers were going to be creating stuff themselves, we wanted something that, um, they could make the name their own as well. Um, and so you'll on a teacher profile page, you'll find that they all have a move with word as well. Yeah. So we thought it was a really interesting branding oppor opportunity and definitely has an opportunity to move into new markets. Um, how's it gone? Uh, the, you know, it's, it's great. I, I, it's, um, it's both the most rewarding and fun thing I've ever done and the hardest thing I've ever done simultaneously. But, um, but it's good. I mean, we're, um, we're definitely growing quickly, particularly on the teacher side, um, and, um, and learning where to go next, uh, which, um, which is a really fun problem to solve for us with teachers. We started out solving, um, you know, just a portion of what they could they could do beyond mm -hmm. the studio. Um, and so now we're looking at what's, what does an original become from here? Um, so that we can start to capture more share of what a teacher is doing beyond the studio, um, while maintaining, uh, the share of the everyday class market within a city. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it going better or worse than you anticipated? Oh, that's a good question. Oh God. You know, when I first started the company, I was like, didn't even know if I was going to raise money. So, mm. um, from that sense better but yeah. i have incredibly high expectations yeah. and so I, I i always want us to be further than we are and so it's always a balance between looking at at reality and making sure like prioritizing engagement over growing too quickly um and so you know if i had to to be hard on myself i, I would like to be moving faster than we are um but i'm also i think we've we've achieved a lot we have an incredible team um we've learned a lot in a very short period of time and uh, and have a playbook to scale. So that's good. Yeah, it is good. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about you and your, your journey. And it, I mean, entrepreneurs always have such interesting backgrounds, but I don't think I would have predicted, I would have guessed your background. So maybe tell us where you grew up and, 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 and going to college and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in a really small ski town, uh, in Idaho called Sun Valley. Um, which has about 5,000 people. You may have heard of it. I've been there many times. It's become a destination and a hotspot for, for tech entrepreneurs. For, oh, is that right? Oh, I just ride mountain bikes there. Oh, actually. good, <laughs> good. Um, yeah, so it's it's a ski resort, um, a tourist destination. They have Allen & Company holds uh, a, a conference there every year. Yeah. So a, a lot of the tech execs go in there every year. Um, but it's beautiful. It's a really mm -hmm. small town. I grew up ski racing, which is what you do when you grow up in mm -hmm. Sun Valley, Idaho, um, which is why I decided to go to the University of Colorado, um, where I ski raced and studied engineering. Um, Wait a second. Okay, <laughs> I, was, I, I was following you until you decided that the optimal degree combination with ski racing was engineering. <laughs> Normally, it would be communications. Well, you know yeah. what's so funny is I actually I showed up to Colorado, and I had to meet with the... Um, athletic academic counselor who had pre-registered me for communications. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I told them that I was majoring in engineering and they explained that that was going to be very difficult to manage both an athletic, my athletic career and um, engineering. Um, but obviously I stuck with the engineering. And, and, uh, and then you actually worked as an engineer. As I, yeah. I did, yeah. So I spent um, about four years working yeah. as an engineer. I started at Sun Microsystems mm -hmm. um, right before they... Rest in peace. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so watched them go through many layoffs, which was a very interesting first career um, opportunity. And then I went to a small engineering consulting company in San Diego where I focused a lot on the design, uh, structural design aspects of products. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately, I, I kind of always knew I was... I took an entrepreneurship class in, in undergrad. Um, I'd actually wanted to start a company since I was 12 probably. Um, and so I, I always gravitated to the like, why, why is this product working? Yeah. And I wanted to yeah. solve the- So you did have the entrepreneurial itch from a very young age. I did, yeah. 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 My parents bought a river rafting company when I was uh, 12 and I started guiding and going out on trips when I was about 15 and I just met all these amazing people yeah. who had started yeah. all of these things. Yeah. And, and so from a very young age, I knew I wanted to do that. Mm. By the way, I, um, I, I did once go on a river rafting trip in Sun Valley and on our trip, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, no way. Yes, um, so <laughs> That's just, awesome. just an aside. <laughs> so you do meet very interesting. You do. Yeah. He was still with Maria. Uh, he <laughs> yeah. used to weightlift right next to me. Oh, that's right. That's where his Hummer. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing his Hummers on the roads. That's yeah. right. He has, a, he has a place there. Okay, so then you made, you you worked as an engineer for a while, but but you then made a transition into, into marketing. 
Um, yeah. Well, so I went and got my MBA. Oh, um, okay. So, that so was... I went to Berkeley mm-hmm. um, and got my MBA. Heard, I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and yeah, decided that uh, I decided actually to leverage my engineering background and product experience and went to Apple to work in product marketing. Mm-hmm. So my job was um, half product and half marketing. So just for our the career switchers out there. So the MBA was an effective way to, to get to, to you got a job at Apple. Yeah. Out of, out of business I, I think yeah. without the MBA, it would have been very difficult yeah. to get that yeah. job. Okay. And then, and then, uh, and then you went from Apple, you had this transition role, entrepreneur in residence, but then that led right into that led right, right into starting right. a company. All right. You know, I want to, it's a, it's a hard question in the last minute or so, but um, and I've asked the same question of Yuri Kim at, at Forerunner, which is about female entrepreneurship and, and venture capital. Is, is first of all, does your demographic skew female, and and uh, and and what's it been like in a more traditional male world of entrepreneurship? Yeah. Yeah. So our, in terms of our customers, yes, it skews female. Mm-hmm. Um, it, interestingly, my team skews female, which mm-hmm. is the first time in my career that it's skewed yeah. female. Um, but it's definitely a male-dominated world mm-hmm. um, in in the venture community and in entrepreneur community broadly. Um, you know, for me, I I grew up in male-dominated worlds as a river guide and a ski racer and an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something I'm very used to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also something that the more I go in my career, the more aware I become of it, um, and um, would love to see more women uh, in the space. Yeah. So you're not really dismissive of the question. Yeah. Uh, you realize there are issues. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, there are definitely issues. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we're actually remarkably out of time. You came in the studio and said, what are we going to talk about for an hour? <laughs> <laughs> but we could we could talk a lot longer. But uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for yeah, having it's, me. It's super interesting. So for more information about Move With, you can visit them online at movewith.com and not be gritsy.com. So move with.com. And you can also follow Holly on Twitter at H L Shelton at H L Shelton. Uh, that just about does it for today's show. If you've got a question about something you heard, or you have a suggestion for companies or guests you'd like to hear featured on the show, please send us a note. Our email address is business radio at Sirius XM.com. Uh, to follow me, you can go to my website, ktulrich.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, at ktulrich. I'd like to thank producer Dana Cash, assistant producer Charlene Gatto, and engineer Dan Baker. And thank you for joining us for today's show. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM, Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.